Pushkin. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you, who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC. Copyright 2024, J.P. Morgan, Chase & Co. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. As regular listeners know, this year's central theme on Deep Background is power. And we've been approaching the question of power from numerous different angles. This week, I want to feature a conversation with one of my contemporaries, a college classmate, actually, who has had an intimate understanding of the structure of power long before, chronologically, most of us even had a whiff of getting anywhere near any of it in the real world. That person is Matthew Barzin, who served as U.S. ambassador to Sweden from 2009 to 2011, and was then the U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom, traditionally considered the jewel in the crown of U.S. ambassadorships for another five years thereafter. What's remarkable about his career is that he had the opportunity to do these jobs starting off when he was still in his 30s, rather than as the capstone to a long and distinguished diplomatic career, the way many, many ambassador positions operate. Since doing that, Matthew has decided to share some of his ideas around power, and he did so in a new book called The Power of Giving Away Power, a book that offers 
a different philosophical account of power, viewing the question very much more from how elites can broaden the base of power than from the countervailing perspective of how elites can constrain and control power. And in an era where populism is seen by many powerful people as a fundamental threat, Matthew instead sees the engagement of broad publics into the possibilities of deploying power as a necessary and positive development, even as he too worries about the kind of populism that comes with bad values or bad beliefs. Having read his book, I thought it would provide a wonderful springboard for a different kind of conversation about power from somebody who knows how to deploy it, but who fundamentally believes that it needs to be reshaped. Matthew, thank you so much for joining me to talk about many things, among which is your terrific new book, The Power of Giving Away Power, with the subtitle, How the Best Leaders Learn to Let Go. And as a lead-in, I want to ask you about your very unusual path to leadership experience at an extremely young age. You came out of the business world, and then when you were still in your 30s, you became an ambassador, first to Sweden and then to the UK. So big ambassadorships. How did all that happen? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Noah. I mean, I, I didn't plan it. I was, as you mentioned, right out of college, I got involved in what was then the very unglamorous world of internet companies. We didn't call them dot-com companies. It was just the internet. I did that for a while. And then a distant cousin of mine announced that he was running for president, John Kerry. This is 2003. And so I had interned for him when I was in college at, when he was a senator. And I said, how can I help? And what you and the listeners know is in our system, if you ask how you can help, 99 times out of 100, the answer is help us raise money. And my heart sank because I was raised in New England. Uh, we have that in common. And I was raised to never talk about money, politics, or religion. And I knew that fundraising would require at least two of those and probably three. And mm-hmm. I sucked at it, which is a longer story. But then I got better at it. And then Senator Obama asked me if I would help out on his campaign. And so that's how I got into his world. And then when he won, he asked me if I would serve as ambassador. And candidly, I thought, oh, that's what like old people do. <laughs> it's just like a giant cocktail party, like, no thanks. But then I learned more about it. There's a great Republican friend of mine who knew a lot about it. And I talked to him and he described what the role of diplomacy was all about. And then I got intrigued and said an enthusiastic yes. So power is one of our central themes on Deep Background, especially this year. And your book is about power. But as you tell that story, it strikes me that you got into a position of genuine power to the extent ambassadorships are that. And we can talk a little more at some point about what kinds of power it's possible to wield in those in those jobs. I think you did that quite interestingly and innovatively. But the way you got there was through a different form of power, which as you said, is the the power of fundraising in our system. Yeah. So if you started off, as you said, not so good at it, not not a naturally talented fundraiser, what was the trick? That is one way of deploying a certain kind of power in our system. Yeah. The reason I was so bad at it for for quite a long time was I sort of thought it was about me. So I would have these awkward, usually emails in my case of like, hey, sorry to bother you. I've set a goal of trying to raise X amount of money and would you help me? And 
Anyway, I, that is not a very effective way of doing it because it puts yourself at the center uh, of the discussion. And I was fortunate enough to be seated next to this amazing woman named Lynn Twist. And she had just written a book back in 2003 called The Soul of Money. And she's a professional fundraiser and had raised hundreds of millions of dollars. So in desperation, I said, can you please, I mean, I will buy your book. I will read it, but I, I need help right now. And she said, <laughs> sure, do you have a pen? And I did. So I picked up a pen and I wrote it down on a napkin. And it was just three things. Number one, money is like water. When it flows, it heals. And when it's stagnant, it kills. Number two, only ask people for money who want to use their money for something greater than themselves. Number three, ask everyone. And of course, the trick there, which I fell for was, wait a minute, how can I ask everyone and only ask people who want to use money? And she basically said, look, everybody wants to use money for something greater than themselves. It may not be politics, or it may not be your political party or your candidate, but it's something. And so if you ask them to do that, you are helping them help their money flow. And so when they say no to you, they might say yes to something else. And so you're doing them a service. And that for me really clicked. And I thought, okay, because I got plenty of no's, but they didn't hurt. They weren't personally wounding. They were just, I felt like I was helping the money and the energy flow. And that for me did it. Does that make any sense? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. It leaves out the sales pitch part. And it makes me interested to hear whether in her view or in your own experience, it doesn't matter so much whether you're selling John Kerry or selling Barack Obama. As an outsider to fundraising, I would think it would make a big difference, no, right? That, that one was more effective and inspiring than the other, but maybe that's just naive. Right? Totally. And it, fast forwarding, when I started to work on the Obama's first campaign and I was doing well and we sort of pioneered the first low dollar fundraiser and then that caught on and we took that out across the country as a model, I was asked with a bunch of other volunteers like me to teach fundraising training, which we pretentiously called Obama University. Subsequent presidents have given presidential name and university a strange name. So this had, none of, that. Yes. <laughs> this had exactly. none of that going on. But anyway, so we'd gather, I think, a hundred at a time, volunteers from all around the country. And if you ask them, which we did, what do you want to get out of today's, it was an all day session. What do you want to get out of today? And everyone wanted the exact same thing, which is please arm me with talking points to go back to Austin or Boston or wherever and win the argument. And the realization that I'd come to learn from Lynn Twist and from Obama himself is, and we did it as a gimmick, we'd say, okay, quick show of hands, how many people here would like to lose an argument? And nobody ever raises their hand. So I don't think we're in the argument winning business. It's just sort of bad math. So you don't need to win an argument. You don't even have to really make a pitch. If you just ask people what their hopes and fears are, really listen and connect it back to, in this case, what Obama also is fearful of and hopeful for, that's pretty much just the job. That's already, a, I think, a powerful takeaway to something that is not immediately available to the ordinary person who reads the news and reads about fundraising. I don't think we think about what the back room looks like, where people are trying to figure out the right way to do it. That's, that's fascinating. So Lynn Twist gave you her book in three bullet points to put on a napkin. I'm curious to see what your napkin-worthy three bullet points are for your own book, The Power of Giving Away Power, because it's a quirky and fascinating book, and I use quirky in the most positive sense of the term. Oh, thank you. What would you say if someone said, well, you know, I'm sitting next to you at a dinner party and I promised to buy your book, but 
what are the bullet points that I can write down right here? All right, this is fun. Putting me on the spot, Noah. Okay, I would, this is inspired by another amazing woman who I didn't get to meet because she died in 1933. And she is the matron saint of my book, and her name is Mary Parker Follett, 1868 to 1933. I encourage listeners to look her up on Wikipedia, which is how I found her. I had a rule about, I'm going to answer your question. I'm stalling for time now. You also have a terrific account about Wikipedia in the book. So you're, it's, it's, all, it's all thematically well, consistent. Well, but, but I had a rule in the book as I was writing it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And I had this little informal rule up on my whiteboard of only, I could only quote three dead white guys per chapter. I love them. I mean, one day I'll be one. But I just figured there ought to be a limit. So I had hit the limit in this particular chapter, and I wanted to quote Peter Drucker, who is, I don't know, the 20th century's probably preeminent, sort of the guru's guru, as it relates to for-profit, non-profit, government, leadership, and management. So he had the perfect thing, and I wanted to quote, but I couldn't. So I start digging around on Wikipedia about Peter Drucker, and I learned that, lo and behold, he had a guru, the guru's guru's guru, if you will. And her name was Mary Parker Follett, and she's this amazing story and she studied power and she studied leadership and I read everything she wrote and she rocked my world. And so inspired by her, I will try to sum it up. And she basically said all of our democracy and all of our business, some of our most intractable problems can actually are going to be dealt with one way or another with a bunch of people sitting around a table with each other. And she said, there are four possible outcomes of a meeting, but only one of them is worthwhile. Now, outcome number one is you go in the meeting and you try to win. She's like, well, that's no good because someone else is going to lose. Option number two is you go in and you just acquiesce. Like Joe is sort of a blowhard, just let him have his way. It's easier that way. That's no good because you haven't brought your contribution to the meeting. Outcome number three, also bad, but very tempting, and we're usually told it's good, is compromise. But her point was, no, look, if you compromise, that's just little mini victories and mini defeats. It's not something to be sought out. The only reason she thought you should get together for a meeting at all is if you could do the fourth thing, which was the only good outcome, which was co-creating something with your fellow meeting members. And it's a pretty high standard, but we all been in those meetings where it really works. And she said, the magic that happens if you make something together in a meeting you are fully, all of you is in that thing you've made. It's in you. You're not diminished for it. You're enriched by it. And you haven't lost yourself in it. And so if we take Mary Follett's, I think, very wise points, I would, if I had to sum up the whole book in a napkin-worthy three bullet points, it would be expect to be needed, expect to need others, and expect to be changed. And that final one's important because in today's lingo, we say, and I think appropriately, and I think Mary Follett would love that we say it, bring your truth to the meeting. Absolutely, because no one else can bring your truth, so you have a deep obligation to bring your truth. But if that's all you do, that's not enough. You need to through this process of co-creation, you ought to leave that meeting a different person than you came in. That's the reciprocal obligation if we take Mary Follett at her word. That's the expect to be changed part. That leads me to a question that 
I myself have been struggling with, and I think is in the backdrop to a lot of the debates about power that we've been having on Deep Background and also in our society more broadly. It's very appealing to say, with Mary Parker Follett and with you, we should exercise what you quote her as calling power with, not power over. And we shouldn't go into the meeting, whether it's a fundraising meeting or a business meeting or any kind of meeting, trying to win. Because as you said, if you win, then somebody else loses. Those are very powerful insights. They seem right. Then you look at a country like the United States today, which is so profoundly divided and polarized. And you don't have to claim that it's unprecedented. I actually don't think it is unprecedented, but it's it's bad in relative terms to the recent sure. past. And you say, well, you know, leaders of the United States, Democratic Party, don't just try to win by having 50 votes in the Senate plus the, the vice president to break the tie. Yeah work with, right? Let's ex- exercise power with, mm-hmm. to which Mitch McConnell says, yeah, no, no thank you. I, I don't want to exercise power with you. Mm. I mean, Barack Obama tried to do this on occasion. Sometimes he got away with it. More often he didn't. I mean, I love the idea. And I do think that under other circumstances, you know, Joe Biden would have been a politician who loved that idea and would have said, yeah, you know, when he was in the Senate, he had a reputation for trying to be a centrist, for being friends with people on both sides of the aisle. It all sounds almost hopelessly romantic and naive seen from a distance of 20 or 25 years, but that is how he operated through much of his career. But it's just not, doesn't seem to be doable now. So I guess I'm in a place of saying, philosophically, I totally agree with you. I mean, I, I love this idea. I love the idea that, you know, the key to power is to not think that you have all the power. I just don't know in practical terms how one can sustain that. Look, I do think you've picked, I mean, our two-party system in Washington right now looks pretty tough. If you come at it through some of the other wonderful topics you've covered on this podcast, take NCAA athletics, right, where almost no one involved thinks the current system is all that great, right? In Louisville, where we live, we don't have a pro team. So we're obsessed with University of Kentucky, University of Louisville. We take it really seriously. If you've got all the fans in a room, they may split red, blue cards, cats, but not on political terms. They love the games that are played and they don't think the current thing is working all that well. So you can imagine that group systematically trying to work through together, finding a better way to do that. I mean, did, would you agree that seems we aren't hopelessly in partisan trench warfare as it relates to college athletics? Yeah, I think that it's, it's definitely plausible that reasonable people without getting super angry at each other, could try to work out a better way to do NCAA sports. Yeah, yeah and the, and I, the, I'm willing to accept that. I'll accept the premise okay, so great. far as Thank it's Thank you. Well, so then, and so the act of working through it, I don't think anyone, or very many people, don't think they have the right answer coming into that meeting or series of meetings. They are open to, and they'll learn about the trade-offs. and like, oh, I didn't realize if you just paid everyone, maybe women's athletics would lose all their money in three weeks. And oh gosh, no, I didn't. That unintended consequence isn't one I'm willing to live with, right? And you start doing that kind of work. I think where it gets tricky and where I think the point of this book could be misunderstood is, and and I'll stay with sports for a second, there's a bathroom somewhere on I-95 between New York and Boston where in the bathroom someone had scribbled, um, Yankees suck. And then someone scribbled it out and wrote Red Sox suck. And then someone wrote Yankee suck, right? So there's like 
almost like 18 inches worth of this scribbling back and forth. And then- Has to have been New Haven, Connecticut, based I, on many factors. Don't you think? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So then someone comes into the bathroom and circles the whole back and forth. And in a big green Sharpie writes, and we all love baseball. Now, you're kind of like, oh, like that feels good for like a second. But if if the people trying to find a way through these intractable problems sound like Mr. Green Sharpie, and I didn't go back, by the way, but you know there's continued commentary on where Mr. Green Sharpie could put his pen. Oh, yes. Like, it's just annoying. It's this sort of group hug, feel good crap that people will just be like, well, that's not a real life thing. So what I would say is somewhere between Red Sox suck, Yankees suck, sort of trench warfare going nowhere, and hey, big group hug, we all love baseball. There exists an in-between space where I think we should put a lot of time and effort, and you are on this podcast, which is to stick with baseball. Hey, should we eliminate the designated hitter in the American League? Now, you can imagine Red Sox and Yankees fans being super short-sighted and being like, well, we have a really good DH now, so that sucks. But you could also imagine them being like, I am willing to have this discussion about a game we love. But bring all your differences and disagreements and argue and haggle about a game you love. And the habits of doing that, I think we've lost and we need to get better at. And we could get better at them outside of high stakes Washington politics, because there's so many other things we could get to work at. And if we got good at doing those, maybe we could, or our children maybe could get better at solving some of these other ones. I want to ask you partly about how we lost that capacity. And I want to use as a concrete example something you're in a position to know a huge amount about, which is the years where you were U.S. ambassador to the United Kingdom were years that the Brexit specter gradually went from being a pie-in-the-sky idea to something actually plausible, and then ultimately, to a lot of people's shock, it actually happened. And you had the front row seat to, to all of that. So I wonder what you would reflect on in observing that whole process in, your, in the course of your pretty significant amount of time there. I, I would argue that they, that's what happened to them. They lost the ability to have the green Sharpie and they collapsed into a Red Sox versus Yankees yeah. or you know, remain versus leave. What do you think happened there at a deep cultural level? I think the honest and short answer is I don't know. What I did learn, as you said, being right there in the middle of all that, I remember when I was at some fancy black tie dinner in the city of London. I was seated next to a gentleman. He was quick to tell me early that he had written something like a 500,000 pound check to the Remain campaign, right? So this is the group against Brexit. And I thought, okay, you know, good to know. And then we chatted about other things. And then I'm looking up at the, in this big vaulted ceiling room, there was some flag I didn't really recognize. It may have been like the city of London flag or something. Then there was the English cross, the English flag, and then there was the Union Jack. And I just said to him offhandedly, I was like, hey, you know, 20 years from now, could you picture the European flag as a fourth flag up there? And you would think I said something incredibly insulting to him. And he turned to me and he's like, over my dead body, you know, gripping his butter knife. And I, so here's a guy funding Remain, and he hates the idea of the European Union flag ever showing up in this place that he loves. And I thought, ooh, okay, that's weird. So th there wasn't a whole lot of love 
for the European Union by the people who were, that's not true of everybody. Some people really got into it, but the, I thought that was a window into, hey, that's a tough thing to prevail. So in that interpretation, which is a fascinating one, um, and I like stories about how you say something in England and then people look at you like you've insulted them, because that seemed to be every conversation I had in the entire time that I lived, <laughs> lived in England. Excellent. Although to be fair, half the time they were also insulting me and they didn't yeah, know they were doing it. Exactly. But, but, but I, so I love the story. It sounds like in your interpretation, you're suggesting that the deep national sentiment that people feel in England and maybe in Britain as well, more broadly, is just so powerful that even people who rationally had an argument for remaining in the European Union at some deep level didn't care about it as much as the people who really wanted out. Well, that's But that it. still begs the question. Yeah, go, go ahead. Well, I yeah. mean, you, so uh, the, the rough round of the way it was worded was just sort of thumbs up, thumbs down, in, out. It was a binary choice. If you gave people, you know, when you do HR surveys, it's like strongly agree, somewhat agree, neutral. There's sort of five check marks you could do across the spectrum. My sense is if you had asked, I have nothing to back this up, this is a hunch, hey, do you want to be totally, fully in the EU like France and Germany are? That's one out of five. Do you want totally out, I never want anything to do with this thing, is a five. I think you would have ended up with people sort of, I don't know, in the two and a half to three kind of, like I want to be in, but I don't want to be in their currency and I don't want to have the same customs union. Oh, which by the way, is where the UK was as it relates to the European Union beforehand. But a lot of that subtlety gets lost in an in-out, yes-no kind of world, which this mindset, which I call the pyramid mindset, which I think is really, I mean, the obvious way is sort of a top-down view of the world. But by the way, a bottom-up view of the world is the exact same shape, and I would argue no better. It's the same pyramid shape where we get trapped into thinking it's win-lose, up-down, in-out, which is how that referendum battle played out. And there's an alternative way of looking at ourselves and the world around us that isn't a pyramid. And these amazing leaders, we talked about some of them. There are lots of others, many of whom we've never heard of, who've built these unbelievably consequential organizations and innovations that we benefit from every day. They chose to not look at the world like a pyramid, and they didn't think, oh, everyone on their own. They chose to look at the world in what I call a constellation which is, yes, be yourself, you're a star, and you see other people as stars, and you try to form new and interesting connections between them to make something useful and something you could never do on your own. Too often, our default setting is looking at the world like a pyramid, and we keep getting into those binary traps. One of the things I really liked about the book is that you didn't fall into the trap that sometimes people do in leadership books where they just give you a series of case studies of quote unquote great leaders and say, do it like this person. And so it was a, a relief that you didn't write it that way. That said, I did finish the book wondering who are your models of people who you think of as having governed either businesses or countries or other kinds of nonprofit entities through this model of giving away power or, or doing the, the power with thing. I mean, it would be great to say Barack Obama, whom we both admire tremendously, yeah. but I sort of think his biggest wins came when he didn't do that. <laughs> you know, Obamacare being a great example of not a win without complexity, but, you know, the real transformative piece of legislation, to my mind, of his, of his presidency, notwithstanding what the Supreme Court did to it subsequently. Mm -hmm. And it really was not ultimately a compromise. It's a great point. I mean, Anne-Marie Slaughter wrote this great 
essay, I think in foreign policy or foreign affairs, and I'm paraphrasing here, but um, she basically starts off, because I would add the Paris Climate Accord, despite what happened to it afterwards, I think it's wonderful. She said, as an internationally trained lawyer and this and this, I ought to hate the deal. And I ought to hate it because it isn't binding. It isn't. And she does the whole litany of what um, were the criticisms of it leading up to it and after it. And she said, but for all those reasons of all those things, it isn't. I think it is wonderful and really helpful because it is not binding. It is open-ended. It allows people, blah, blah, blah. And I think that is an interesting test case. And I, I am no expert on climate or the climate deal but that we could get out, then get back in. Other people could step up for us when the previous administration didn't want to. All of that is a kind of weird, in a good sense, and flexible way of dealing with something um, that is voluntary. People set their own targets and it may go off the rails, but there, it, it could lead to something really beautiful. I, I like that. So Anne-Marie Slaughter, she's someone I admire tremendously. You know, she's done things in academia where she was a professor and a dean. She's been in government as director of policy planning in the State Department. Now she runs a think tank. I mean, there's sort of no cool thing in the world of, you know, public life that that she hasn't done. And she's argued really in a series of books over the course of almost 20 years about the value in the international community of networks of people who are often like-minded, who come from different countries and cooperation among those people. Now, one of the criticisms of her work that's come both from the left and from the right, um, and she is nothing if not the mainstream of American foreign policy thinking, I think I always think it's good if people are criticizing you on both sides. But one of the criticisms that, that her work has encountered is that the people who are doing the dance are actually an elite. Mm. And that they're an elite that exercises a lot of power that because it's not centered in one person, most people don't really notice. Mm -hmm and which is therefore in some sense less responsive to big majorities of, of people. Yeah. That made me want to ask you about the sort of overall picture you have of the, the power of giving away power. It's very consistent with Anne-Marie's idea of shared power. As you said, a lot of decisions are made by the people in the room. And I wonder, how, how do you think about that? I mean, it could be very down to the grassroots, but, you know, 50 million or 330 million people have trouble all sitting in a room together. They're always representatives of that group who are sitting in the room. Yeah, it's funny. You said two phrases that I think often come up in this context that are important to clarify and, and redefine maybe. And one is, um, and I had this discussion with Anne-Marie. She came to London and she said, oh, we need more bottoms up. And I made the point to her I made earlier, like bottoms up is no better. If you think of yourself or you think of other people is at the bottom, you are doomed. Nothing good is going to come from thinking of people at the bottom. You'll be condescending or you'll feel condescended to, depending on where you've put yourself in that equation. It's an awful equation. And you do not have to look at yourself or others is at the bottom of a pyramid. You could think of yourself as stars in a constellation, for example. The other is the word sharing power, which is what you said sounds right. It is a exercise in dividing. Implicit in sharing powers, there's only so much, and so I'll, we'll divvy it up. And it's like, no, 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 you're, you're done. Once you're in that limited mindset, the great leaders, these constellation leaders, power is not something to be 
obviously lorded over others. Okay, we all got that memo. It's not something to be hoarded to yourself as an isolated individual. It is not something to be divvied up and shared. It is something to be made with and through other people, made and multiplied over and over again. And that's where the magic lives. And it's where the phrase grassroots is a real problem because it's just kind of code for bottom up too. We'll be right back. Small business owners, this one's for you. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, N.A. member, FDIC, copyright 2024. J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. So I, I like that and I buy it. And I also take it that what you're saying is that power needs to be conceptualized as not zero sum. It has to be positive sum. You can construct power in ways that are inclusive because you're not starting with a pie and then dividing up the pie. Yeah. And I think that's very, very powerful. Do you think there are no zones of power, though, that would genuinely, truly qualify as zero sum? Aren't there some oh, situations? I'm sure. 
Yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, if you think about the amassing of troops and resources and the logistics of D-Day, I bet that was very pyramid-like and top-down and work backwards from a set date, all the sorts of things I warn against in the book. Like, it was helpful for that. But what I love is Churchill made the point at the time, like, that is to win this victory. And then a different kind of hard work begins where that mindset isn't at all helpful. And that's what he called for the forming of special relationships, which sounds really touchy-feely, except it's Winston Churchill saying it. And he's like, no, no, millions of them, right? Between farmers and farmers. And like, that's where the energy and this new kind of power can be created and multiplied. I, I don't know if we're allowed to. If Can I ask you a question? Because this is, I, I, I didn't write this in the book, but I want to, it's what I've been struggling with. In the book, I talk about the fact that win-win is a losing formula. Because it sounds good at first. It's like win-win, but you can't sort of talk about winning without implying losing. And it comes with all these, it comes with that pyramid mindset that isn't helpful, I think, to a whole bunch of intractable problems we're trying to work through together. So I went back to that famous Adam Smith quote, we do not rely on the benevolence of the butcher, the baker, or the brewer for our dinner, right? And I think, and then you read on a little bit, and he is understandably, I think, skeptical of sort of the do-gooder instinct. And I think this is particularly important for progressives to listen to that critique of he had seen so many things not happen or happen badly with relying on benevolence alone. My question for you is like, okay, so it seems like we've run with it over since 1776 till now. We've sort of run with that. Okay, you don't rely on the benevolence, so then you do sort of some version of enlightened self-interest or whatever. That's what is going on between the butcher, the baker, the brewer, and you, who's an implied other stick figure in Adam Smith's rendition, which doesn't seem right either. And I guess my question is like, what would you describe as the relationship? What does the butcher think of the baker? What does the baker think of the brewer? How does the brewer think of you? What is going on between all those people that begin with B? One of the answers that immediately comes into my mind is inspired by the historian Emma Rothschild's writing about Adam Smith. And what she, I'm going to grossly oversimplify this, but one thing that she shows is that, you know, Smith is famous for Wealth of Nations, which is where the quote you're introducing comes from. But he also wrote this incredibly influential at the time book called A Theory of Moral Sentiments. Yeah. And he was actually really deeply interested in exactly the question that you're asking. What are the, we would call them affects or sentiments that shape the moral life? Mm. And now this is me riffing on Emma, but I think it's sort of interesting that in Smith's world, people still believed that being in commerce with other people made you like them more. Mm. made you feel more connected to them. Because relative to, I live in my little hamlet, I never leave, I you know, grow all my own food, I make everything that I make for myself, and I therefore never meet the people on the other side of the hill. And when I meet them, I don't like them. Because if I meet them, it's probably because they're trying to steal something from me. Relative to that world, a world where I go over the hill with my goods and the people on the other side of the hill come up to the top of the hill with their goods and we trade mm. is a world where we have more human contact, more engagement. And I think in the 1700s, a lot of people believed with Smith that the way I would think about those other people with whom I was trading on a daily basis is that I liked them because I got to yeah. know them a little. Yeah, there we go. Then we got 
you know, 50 years later, by the time Marx is looking at the same economic situation, by then, big time capitalism has come into existence. And we've had the industrial revolution much beyond what Smith could just glimpse the beginnings of. And then at that point, Marx is starting to say, look, economic relationships are alienated. It's no longer the case that I like you. And so now we sort of imagine that in the small town, everyone knew each other and liked each other. But once you go to the big city and you have to buy and sell in a, in a big store mm. or you work in a factory, you become alienated from the other people, alienated from your labor. And I guess my own, my own view is that in the perfect world, all of our interactions would enable us to feel a little more human connection, a little more human contact. And, you know, the internet shows you how complicated this yeah. is, right? The internet both was a, had a promise of anonymity and a danger of alienation. And especially with the rise of social media, it produces at least the perception of intimacy. Then mm. you can actually get to know people on the internet whom you wouldn't know otherwise. Look at my kids' world. They have a much broader acquaintanceship than I did at their age because I basically knew people whom I had met. Yeah, And they know a lot of people well whom they've never, they've met them, but they haven't met them in, in person. Mm -hmm. So I guess to me, this is the sort of thing that's, it's always, both elements are gonna, are gonna be there. We're gonna have to interact with you, with one another, knowing that we have something to gain, that there's something kind of quote unquote purely economic about it. Yes. But we also need to have some sense of human connection. And if we don't, we're screwed. Well, uh, thank you. And that is very helpful. As you were saying that, I was thinking, often I think our debate is the individual or like big groups of people. And what I think Mary Follett and what we're talking about is small groups of people sitting around a table together, something as mundane as your staff meeting on Monday. Like that is certainly where Mary Follett said, that's where a lot of this work can happen because in a, in a crowd, you can be lost. You're not lost in a group. You are more you in a group. You can only really know yourself by bumping into working through with other people around you and figuring out ways to get people around a table and not to say things that like what unites us is greater than what divides us, which is another one of these things that everyone nods their head. I certainly do when people say it because you're supposed to nod your head to it, but I don't think it's true. And I think all the energy lies in difference. That's where the magic, that's where all the energy lives. So let's not be afraid of it or sweep it under the carpet. Let's deal with it. We'll be right back. Chase for Business and iHeart bring you a new podcast series called The Unshakables. This one-of-a-kind series will shine the spotlight on small business owners like you who faced a do-or-die moment that ultimately made their business what it is today. Join hosts Ben Walter, CEO of Chase for Business, and Tanya Nebo, a lawyer and business consultant, on these storytelling journeys of trials, tribulations, and triumphs that hinged on a single event, a split-second decision, or even a stroke of luck. Whether the story is about a warehouse going up in flames or a former partner stealing a whole roster of clients, each episode will showcase the grit, determination, and resourcefulness a small business owner needed to turn a pivotal situation into a springboard for success. Listen to The Unshakables now and learn more at chase.com slash business slash podcast. Chase, make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase, NA member, FDIC, 2024, J.P. Morgan Chase & Co. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this 
alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Matthew, I want to thank you for your service to the country, for a fascinating and challenging book, and for a really great conversation about power and how we can rethink it uh, in more productive ways going forward. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for this podcast. And uh, you're hitting on crypto we didn't talk about, but all the topics you're going through on this podcast are the things I'm eager to learn much more about. So I'm a big listener and fan, too. Thank you. Thanks, Tom. Speaking to Matthew about the power of giving away power, I was really struck by the paradox that lies at the heart of it. On one hand, Matthew is a strong advocate of the idea that we need to recognize our diversity and our difference in order for power to mean anything. And that instinct lies at the heart of his idea that we need to diffuse power and spread it out to many different people in order for it to function. And indeed, that doing so will enhance the power and authority of the legitimate democratic institutions that do so. That insight seems to be correct, and it is, after all, the basic insight on which all democracy is built. Democracy is, after all, the very idea that collective rules should take place collectively rather than from the dominant center. Yet, at the same time, as Matthew acknowledges and indeed points out, in a world where we are tremendously diverse— and where power is sent out to many, many different people, there is a real risk that our divisions will become so significant that we will no longer be able to make collective decisions. And a glance at the U.S. political system over the last five or six years suggests that we may actually be in such a period. Indeed, in other historical moments, political division might have given way to common feeling when we faced something like the COVID pandemic. But in our profoundly politicized era, it seems as though even existential threat to our lives is not enough to pull us together, as we've come to understand and construe the pandemic in politicized terms and in polarized terms, making it harder and harder for polarization to go away. In this conversation, I don't think that either Matthew or I solved this paradox, and perhaps it's a paradox that can't be perfectly solved. Like Matthew, I have a lot of faith in our capacities to pull together as a country eventually. Yet that said, I don't have a simple solution to how we get there, other than living through the realities of our divisions and trying to slowly and gently make our way back towards the middle. I think that's the kind of aspiration that Matthew has, 
And to me, it makes his political vision immensely attractive and interesting. And it makes him a person who's worth watching going forward, not just for the ways he's deployed power in the past, but for the takeaways and lessons that it's led him to reach. Until the next time I speak to you here on Deep Background, breathe deep, think deep thoughts, and have some fun. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Mo Laborde. Our engineer is Ben Tolliday. And our showrunner is Sophie Crane McKibben. Editorial support from Noam Osband. Theme music by Luis Guerra. At Pushkin, thanks to Mia Lobel, Julia Barton, Lydia Jean Cott, Heather Fain, Carly Migliori, Maggie Taylor, Eric Sandler, and Jacob Weisberg. You can find me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. I also write a column for Bloomberg Opinion, which you can find at Bloomberg.com slash Feldman. To discover Bloomberg's original slate of podcasts, go to Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. And if you liked what you heard today, please write a review or tell a friend. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.